This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened. I'm okay. Other people have it worse. It doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd start to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Whether you're making a delicious family meal or a post-workout snack, choose the farm-fresh taste of Eggland's Best Eggs. Only Eggland's best hens are fed their proprietary all-vegetarian feed. That's what makes their eggs more nutritious. With 10 times more vitamin E, 25% less saturated fat, and 6 times more vitamin D compared to ordinary eggs. Eggland's Best. Better taste, better nutrition, better eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com to learn more. It sounds like something out of a dark dystopian novel. A shadowy businessman walks into a meeting with two high-ranking judges. He promises them millions of dollars in exchange for a contract to build two privately owned juvenile detention centers which he would operate for a profit using government funds. Over the next six years, Thousands of teenagers are sentenced to these new detention centers, most of them for minor, non-violent misdemeanors, some of them for offenses that the Supreme Court later ruled shouldn't have been considered crimes at all. It takes years of investigation to prove the parents' suspicions. The detention centers buy children like commodities, paying bribes to the judges in return for unusually harsh sentences. But this isn't a scene from a dystopian future. It actually happened 10 years ago in Luzerne County, Pennsylvania, in a scandal that came to be known in the national media as Kids for Cash. This is just one of many scandals surrounding private, for-profit prisons, a system sometimes called the Prison Industrial Complex. In 1970, there were about 200,000 people in prison in the United States. According to a report from the Prison Policy Initiative, by 2017, that number has climbed to 2.3 million. That's more than any other country in the world, even more than China, where the total population is four times the population of the U.S. 
The Department of Justice found that in 2014, about 1 in 36 adults were in the correctional system, either in prison or on probation or parole. In addition to that, there were over 54,000 minors in juvenile detention centers. And while the prison population was surging, a new industry was growing along with it, privately owned companies that run prisons for a profit. In 2010, the nation's two largest prison corporations reported a combined annual revenue of $3.3 billion from the 130 private prisons they operated around the country. Conspiracy? Maybe. Coincidence? Maybe. Complicated? Absolutely. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, the podcast where we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. If you want to listen to previous episodes, you can find them on your favorite podcast directory or on our website, parcast.com. I'm Carter Roy. I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong, sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. Today, we'll be talking about the crisis of mass incarceration that some people call the prison industrial complex. This term was derived from military industrial complex, a phrase President Eisenhower used in 1961 to describe the relationship between the military and the arms industry. The idea is that since the military benefits from obtaining weapons and arms manufacturers benefit from being paid to supply weapons, the government and arms corporations work to support each other through campaign contributions and spending bills. That same concept can be applied to the relationship between the government and private prisons. In the past two decades, over 1,000 new prisons and jails have been built across the U.S., and more than 170 of them are run by private, for-profit corporations. Almost all of the private prisons in the country are operated by three nationwide corporations, the Corrections Corporation of America, Geo Group, formerly known as Wackenhut Corrections, and Management and Training Corporation. Many people wonder whether private prisons were built as a response to the rising incarceration rate or if they were the cause of it. And how deep did this potentially go? Did the CIA intentionally start the crack epidemic as an excuse to send more people to prison? Did the record industry push gangster rap to encourage crime as a favor to the private prison corporations? First, let's look at the facts and the official version about how the prison industry came to be before we get into the conspiracy theories. To understand the situation, we have to go back to June 18, 1971, when President Richard Nixon delivered a speech to Congress about the public dangers of drug addiction. He said drug abuse was public enemy number one and called for more funding for rehabilitation programs and drug control agencies, as well as stricter punishment for drug-related crimes. This was the official beginning of what became known as Nixon's War on Drugs. Drug abuse was definitely becoming a serious problem. The government had already been trying to stop narcotics and marijuana smuggling along the border for years. 
And just a few months before Nixon's speech, two congressmen released a report showing that 10 to 15 percent of U.S. servicemen in Vietnam were addicted to heroin. But instead of just treating addiction, Nixon's administration shifted the focus to stopping the crime that came along with drug use. Drug addicts were no longer seen as innocent victims of their circumstances. They were a threat to the safety and morality of the nation. Two years later, in 1973, the Drug Enforcement Administration was created to handle all federal drug control efforts. And later that year, Nelson Rockefeller, the governor of New York, proposed the harshest anti-drug laws the country had ever seen. In his State of the State address, he demanded that everyone convicted of selling illegal drugs should be given a mandatory sentence of life without parole. The state legislature didn't go quite that far, but they enacted a mandatory sentence of 15 years to life for anyone possessing four ounces or selling two ounces of any illegal substance. It was a politically popular move. Affluent and middle-class voters were all for getting dangerous drugs and criminals off the streets. But the new laws faced pushback from an unexpected source, criminal justice experts. It sounds counterintuitive, but the evidence suggests that prisons actually create more crime than they prevent. When inmates are released with no money and diminished job prospects, they often see no other option than to turn back to crime. According to the National Institute of Justice, three-quarters of all prisoners are arrested again within five years after their release. In fact, in 1973, while New York was enacting their mandatory minimum laws, a federal commission on criminal justice recommended that no new institutions for adults should be built and existing institutions for juveniles should be closed. They concluded, quote, the prison, the reformatory, and the jail have achieved only a shocking record of failure. But for politicians, it looks good to be putting people behind bars. Even if the crime rate isn't diminishing, they can point to their prisons as proof that they're serious about stopping crime. For the first decade of Nixon's war on drugs, there was only a minor increase in the total number of people in prison. But that all changed when a new drug hit the streets. Crack. In the early 80s, an overabundance of cocaine from the Caribbean islands and South America was causing prices to drop. Drug dealers came up with a solution to increase their profits. Mix cocaine powder with water and baking soda to create a solid substance that can be sold to more people in smaller quantities. The solid form, which they called crack, was easy to make and depending on the ratio of ingredients, it could stretch the original product very far. Dealers were able to sell crack for the same price per gram as powder cocaine and turn a huge profit margin. A single dosage of crack was incredibly cheap. In the early 80s, it could be obtained for as low as $2.50 in most major cities, which is around $6 in today's money. Cheap enough to be accessible to low-income earners in the inner cities. The crack trade flourished in inner cities, not just because the product was affordable, but because drug dealing was an easy way to move up the economic ladder. 
ambitious young people with no other opportunities for advancement could start their own drug enterprises and make considerable money. Crack dealing didn't take any education or initial resources, and there was practically no barrier for entry. The problem? Since their product was illegal, there were no legal protections for the crack market. Dealers had to defend their investments through violence and intimidation. Many of them bought firearms to defend themselves or joined gangs for protection. Hostile takeovers of prime territory were common. And police crackdowns didn't help. When the police shut down a dealer on one street, they just moved to a different area and competed violently with the other dealers who worked there. Something new had to be done, and in 1982, President Ronald Reagan declared his war on drugs. Vice President George H.W. Bush called for the CIA and military to be involved in drug crackdowns. The Reagan administration even hired staff to publicize the crack epidemic in an effort to build public support for their drug war. And it worked. In 1986, Congress passed new laws that specifically targeted crack abuse. The new laws made the sentences for possession or trafficking of crack 100 times more severe than the sentences for powder cocaine. There was now a mandatory minimum of five years for possession of five grams of crack, the same as the penalty for possession of 500 grams of powder cocaine. Over the next few years, the arrest rate for drug-related crimes skyrocketed. But there was an alarming trend in the records. Even though data from the National Institute on Drug Abuse showed that in 1991, 52% of crack users were white and 38% were black, sentencing records show that 79% of the people sentenced for crack offenses were black and only 10% were white. More prisons would have to be built to house all the inmates coming in. But running a prison takes time, money, and resources. It's a draining task for a state government to take on. They needed an easy, cost-effective solution to the overcrowding problem. As they always say, necessity is the mother of invention. It wasn't long before entrepreneurs realized prisons could be an opportunity for profit. Earlier, we mentioned the harsh drug laws passed by the New York State Legislature under Governor Rockefeller. The next governor, Mario Cuomo, found himself in the midst of a prison overcrowding crisis as a result of his predecessor's policies. Unable to repeal the Rockefeller drug laws, he realized he would have to build more prisons. But even though New York voters supported tough-on-crime policies, they wouldn't agree to using tax dollars to build new prisons. In 1981, voters struck down a $500 million bond issue for prison construction. The money would have to come from somewhere else. Cuomo approached a state agency called the Urban Development Corporation, which had been created in the 60s to build housing for the poor. The Urban Development Corporation had the power to issue bonds for any sort of construction project without needing voters' approval. So after the public voted against using general-issue state bonds to finance prison construction, Cuomo decided to use bonds from the Urban Development Corporation instead. Both sides of the political spectrum criticized him for defying the voters and for using urban development funds to build prisons. His detractors argued that prisons weren't the kind of low-income housing the agency was meant to build. But Cuomo's hands were tied. 
he didn't have the power or political support to repeal the mandatory minimum laws. And he could hardly tell the police to stop arresting criminals for a few years until the existing prisons cleared out. When the project was completed, Cuomo had built 30 jails throughout New York State. The total cost of the project was $7 billion. By 1990, the state's inmate population had doubled. Cuomo liked to brag that he was putting dangerous felons behind bars. But in that same time period, state police records showed that violent crime incidents had risen by 24%. Locking up drug offenders apparently did nothing to stop crime. In fact, the whole endeavor proved the findings of that federal report from 1973 that said prisons actually create more crime than they prevent. Despite building so many new prisons, there had been so many arrests that the system was even more overcrowded than it was before construction began. So the solution was? To keep building even more prisons. Of course. Because even though all the new prisons weren't leading to a decrease in the crime rate, they were providing other benefits that no one had anticipated. Most of the 30 new prisons Cuomo's project built were in rural areas where the local economy was sagging. Small-town residents, especially educated young people, were moving to the cities where there were more job opportunities and the communities were slowly disintegrating. Prisons, it turned out, brought a huge economic boost to rural communities. They were a great source of jobs. Instead of moving to the city, young people could stay in their hometowns and make a good salary as corrections officers. In local construction companies, Dry goods manufacturers and suppliers, and even phone companies, got a boost in business from the prisons. Now, while all of this was happening in New York, something similar was going on in Tennessee. Only this time, it wasn't a state-sponsored agency funding prison construction. It was a private corporation. In 1983, Tom Beasley, the chairman of the Tennessee Republican Party, and T. Don Hutto, the president of the American Correctional Association, founded the Corrections Corporation of America, headquartered in Nashville. The CCA was founded on a simple observation. There was a high demand for imprisonment and a low supply of prison cells. It was the perfect opportunity for profit. Prisons had always been controlled by the government, but why couldn't the job be outsourced to private companies? Explaining his business strategy, Tom Beasley said, quote, you just sell it like you were selling cars or real estate or hamburgers. Essentially, the plan was private corporations would build and operate prisons, the way a company might operate a hotel, and the government would pay to use their facilities. It takes the burden of building and running prisons off of the government's shoulders, and as long as they can keep their cost of operation lower than what the government is paying them, the corporations will profit. CCA's first contract was awarded by the U.S. Department of Justice. They were hired to build and operate a detention facility for undocumented immigrants in Houston, Texas. Beasley and Hutto bought a motel on the outskirts of town and repurposed the rooms into cells. At the end of January 1984, the new Houston Detention Center opened its doors and processed 87 undocumented immigrants. It was the first privately owned detention facility in the United States. 
but CCA had their sights set on more than immigrant detainment. Later that year, they were awarded a contract to take over a local jail in Shelby County, Tennessee. This was the first time the complete operations of a jail had been contracted out to a private company. Within a year, CCA had also taken control of two juvenile detention centers in Tennessee, and they were ready to make a move for their ultimate goal, running the state's entire prison system. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. And now back to the story. In 1984, the overcrowding at a state-owned prison in Nashville had reached crisis levels. There were too many inmates in too small a space, and the staff couldn't keep them under control. Fights and riots happened almost daily, and several of them ended in deaths. The overcrowding was so dangerous that the state Supreme Court declared it unconstitutional. They would have to build more prisons as soon as possible. The Tennessee Congress called a special session to address the problem. They needed $38 million to build six new prisons. But where would the money come from? It was during that special session that Tom Beasley introduced the nation's first proposal for a private corporation to manage a statewide prison system. He asked the state to give CCA the entire annual correctional budget, approximately $170 million, and in return, they'd use $250 million of private money to build the new prisons and manage the existing facilities. They'd draw their profit from, quote, more efficient use of the state's regular operating budget. By cutting costs and spending less than the total state budget, CCA could pocket the remainder of the funds. And by outsourcing to CCA, the state wouldn't have to deal with the burden of constructing and running six new prisons. It was a win-win situation. But the Oversight Committee was hesitant to privatize the entire state system at once. Instead, they passed a bill allowing CCA to run a single state prison that was already under construction. Tom Beasley wasn't discouraged. Maybe CCA couldn't run every prison in Tennessee, but the demand for private prisons was rapidly growing in other states across the nation. Throughout the 80s, other governors had found themselves in the same position as Mario Cuomo. They needed more prisons, but they couldn't convince their voters to support more funding for prison construction. 
they realized they could use corporate bonds the same way Cuomo used bonds from the Urban Development Corporation without needing the approval of voters. Politically, it was almost too good to be true. Politicians could appear tough on crime without having to raise taxes to build more prisons. Instead, the prisons would be financed by private backers, and all the government had to do was pay interest on the corporate bonds. That's much easier to sell to the public than a multi-million dollar construction project. Soon, another private prison company sprung up in Florida to compete with CCA. Wackenhut Corrections Corporation won its first contract in 1987 to operate an immigration detainment center in Colorado. CCA and Wackenhut were competitors, but there was one area where they could work together, pushing for harsher prison sentencing laws. Both corporations became major contributors to the American Legislative Exchange Council, a.k.a. ALEC, a nonprofit organization that drafts bills for state legislators. The organization's membership records show that both CCA and Wackenhut Corporation have held leadership positions on ALEC's crime task force. ALEC played a big role in expanding prison privatization and in keeping those private prisons full. The organization pushed for initiatives like Truth in Sentencing, which limits parole opportunities so that criminals have to serve the entire length of their sentence, and Three Strikes Laws, which require a mandatory life sentence for anyone who's convicted of three felonies. It's easy to see why private prisons would be in favor of longer sentences. Prisons make their money by charging a premium for each inmate they house, similar to guests at a hotel. The cost of running the prison is more or less the same, regardless of how many inmates are occupying it. So the more beds they can fill, the more money they can make. And if there's less turnover between inmates, it's easier to keep all their spaces occupied. CCA was a member of the ALEC task force while it was pushing, quote, truth in sentencing and three strikes bills, legislation that would keep inmates behind bars for longer and, by extension, increase profits for private prisons. Could CCA have pushed for these harsher laws solely for the sake of their own profit margin? It's difficult to prove their intentions, but there is a correlation. Over the next few years, many states passed the kind of bills ALEC was supporting. The incarceration rate continued to rise at an average of 7% per year. And by 1997, CCA's annual revenue had reached $462 million, five times what it was making just five years earlier. By then, CCA had the money and influence to revisit their proposal from 12 years earlier, taking over the entire Tennessee prison system. In 1997, Tennessee was facing a $100 million budget shortage. They needed to do something to cut costs, and incarceration was one of the biggest spending areas, at the same level as education and health care. Speaker of the House Jimmy Nafee and Representative Matt Kisber sponsored an effort to privatize the entire state prison system through CCA. The effort was supported by the governor, Don Sunquist. That's pretty high-profile support. They must have thought it would be a profitable idea. Profitable for the state? Maybe. Profitable for themselves? Definitely. Tom Beasley was the leading contributor 
to Nafee, Kisber, and Sunquist re-election campaigns. And more than that, CCA's chief lobbyist, Betty Anders, was the wife of Speaker Jimmy Nafee. So the leading supporters of the privatization effort all had a personal stake in making sure it succeeded. Yes, but we can't definitively say that they were acting out of self-interest. Perhaps they really believed private prisons were the best choice for the state. That's true, but their opponents argued that compared to state-run facilities, private prisons were inefficient and even dangerous. The major opponent to the privatization effort was the Tennessee State Employees Association, a labor union that includes around 4,500 correctional officers who had direct experience working inside the state's private facilities. Private prisons turn a profit by reducing costs. The easiest way to do that is by hiring less employees and offering less benefits to the staff they do have. The staff per inmate ratio is about 15% lower at private prisons compared to state-run facilities. Not only is that bad for the job market, but it can be dangerous for corrections officers. With less staff, it's harder to control the inmates. Fights and riots are more likely to get out of hand and end in serious injuries or death. The rate of what officials call serious incidents ranging from attacks on guards to drug smuggling, was 28% higher at CCA's private prison in Clifton, Tennessee, than at the state's public prisons. And another cause for concern was the inmates at Tennessee's CCA facilities who were transferred there from out of state. While the Tennessee legislature was debating the privatization proposal, A wave of news stories from Ohio raised questions about exactly how safe CCA's facilities were. Police say the six cut through a gate at the Northeast Ohio Correctional Center. At least three prison uniforms have been found in nearby woods. The facility is operated by Corrections Corporation of America in Nashville, Tennessee. It's been plagued with problems since it opened about a year ago. Two inmates have been killed and there have been at least 13 stabbings. Nancy Nussbaum, Columbus, Ohio. In 1997, CCA opened a medium-security prison in Youngstown, Ohio. The city knew a prison would bring much-needed jobs to their area, so they made a bargain. CCA could build a prison in Youngstown to house overflow inmates from prisons in Washington, D.C., with the stipulation that CCA would only bring in inmates with no history of violence. Within the next year, there were 13 stabbings at the facility. Two of them were fatal. According to state records, the entire rest of the Ohio prison system, with its 49,000 inmates, reported only 12 assaults with deadly weapons that year, and none of them were fatal. Local officials started to worry that CCA was accepting violent inmates in violation of their agreement. CCA denied it. And then, in July 1998, Six inmates cut through a gate and escaped from a medium-security CCA prison in Youngstown, Ohio. An investigation by the U.S. Marshal Service revealed that five of the six escapees were convicted murderers. The first question on everyone's mind was, what were murderers doing at this medium-security prison in the first place? The city of Youngstown and the prison's inmates filed a joint federal lawsuit against CCA, attempting to force them to remove all the maximum security prisoners from the Youngstown facility. 
a consultant looked over the records and determined that 113 of the inmates at Youngstown should have been at a maximum security prison, and another 201 were classified as closed security, the level between maximum and medium, usually applied to violent offenders who don't pose an immediate risk to other inmates. CCA had promised to screen the inmates they transferred to Youngstown to make sure they were suited for a medium security facility. But during the investigation, their chief of security testified that he had never been given a file on any of the inmates from Washington before they were transferred, and the facility had never rejected an inmate that the Washington facility proposed to transfer. Whether it was a miscommunication between the facilities or a conscious attempt to deceive the state of Ohio is unclear. But either way, the result was the same. Violent inmates had been transferred to Youngstown's medium security prison in direct violation of CCA's contract with the state. After a long court battle, CCA was ordered to move the violent inmates back to a maximum security prison where they belonged. And that was only the beginning of their problems. The news from Ohio had spread all over the country. If there were security risks at one CCA facility, were there dangers at their other facilities too? That's what the media in Tennessee was asking, while the state legislature debated whether to privatize the entire prison system. At the time, there were around 1,600 out-of-state inmates at Tennessee's private prisons. Everyone was wondering whether some of those inmates were violent felons, like the ones who escaped in Ohio. The key supporters of the privatization bill were all up for re-election in a few months, and it wouldn't look good to keep supporting such a controversial proposal. After the news of the court case in Ohio reached Tennessee, Jimmy Nafee and Governor Sundquist began to waver. Representative Kisber, who sponsored the bill in the first place, publicly withdrew his support. The bill died in the House, and CCA moved on. But the whole endeavor proves how close CCA is to the center of public policy. If it wasn't for that one poorly timed scandal, they might have succeeded in privatizing Tennessee's entire prison system. Through the late 90s, news continued to spread of the escapes and violence at private prisons, and public interest in the war on drugs began to wane. The incarceration rate for drug offenses stagnated, and soon, CCA was on the verge of bankruptcy. They realized they'd have to change strategies if they wanted to keep turning a profit. Luckily for them, a whole new market sprang up in 2001. In response to the terrorist attacks on September 11th, the George W. Bush administration began a zero-tolerance policy for immigrants illegally crossing the border from Mexico. From 2001 to 2011, there were four times as many immigrants detained at the border than there were in the previous decade. The immigrants had to be held somewhere while they were processed before deportation. So, CCA returned to its roots, building and operating immigration detention centers. By 2005, about 25% of immigrants in custody were held in private prisons. And by 2014, that number had risen to 62%. This was a huge opportunity for private prisons. Between 2005 and 2014, CCA and Wackenhut, which had since changed its name to Geogroup, 
had doubled their revenues. And in that same period, CCA had spent $18 million and Geo Group had spent $4 million lobbying Congress for more spending on immigration detention. In 2010, an act of Congress mandated that the Department of Homeland Security maintain at least 33,400 beds in immigration detention centers. Two years later, that quota was raised to 34,000. Technically, this doesn't mean all of those beds need to be filled. They just need to be available. But there are huge incentives for the government to make sure all the available spots in detention centers are filled. A report from the Center for Constitutional Rights revealed that the contracts between the Department of Homeland Security and private prison corporations stipulate that a minimum number of beds in each facility have to be paid for each day, whether they're actually being used by detainees or not. And in addition to that, the government receives a discounted rate for each detainee above the minimum quota. What this means, essentially, is that the government saves money by detaining more people and by placing them all in private facilities instead of state-owned detention centers. And it also means they have an incentive to hold people for longer than necessary before releasing or deporting them. When crime rates started to drop in the 2000s, CCA started applying this same principle to regular prisons as well. Two-thirds of private prison contracts now include lockup quotas, stipulating that the government has to keep the facilities between 80 and 100 percent full. But what happens when the number of criminals dips below the lockup quota? States either have to pay for the remainder of the empty beds below the quota, or they can transfer prisoners from their state-owned facilities into the private facilities. The private facilities keep their profit margins, and the state has to foot the entire bill for their half-empty public prisons. Here's a case study. In Colorado, the crime rate has decreased by one-third in the past decade. Their initial contract with CCA explicitly said that the state wouldn't guarantee a minimum number of inmates at their facilities. The private prisons were meant to be used for overflow for the state facilities, not the other way around. But in 2013, CCA persuaded Colorado to add an occupancy requirement to their contract. The state was forced to transfer their inmates from public facilities to private to avoid breaking their contract. Within a few years, five state-owned prisons were shut down for disuse, while the CCA facilities all stayed open. The Colorado Criminal Justice Reform Coalition estimated that the underpopulation at their public facilities cost the state at least $2 million. At the end of it all, private prisons cost the state money instead of saving it. What started out as a quick problem solver turned into another problem entirely. But once prison contracts are signed, it's nearly impossible to back out of them. The state of Arizona learned that the hard way when they went up against Management and Training Corporation, or MTC, the nation's third largest prison corporation. In July 2010, three inmates escaped from a medium security MTC facility in Kingman, Arizona. Two of them were convicted of murder, and the third was in prison for an attempted second-degree murder. 
At around 9 p.m. on July 30th, their accomplice and getaway driver drove up behind the prison and tossed them bolt cutters and pliers over the chain-link fence. They cut a hole through the fence and escaped. The alarm went off, but the guards didn't respond. They didn't think anything of it because the alarm was broken and went off falsely all the time. In fact, the alarm had already sounded 89 times on the day of the escape. And to make matters worse, eight of the floodlights in the prison yard were broken. The inmates were able to walk off without anyone noticing. One of the men separated from the others and took off with the getaway car. The other two, and their accomplice, walked eight miles to the interstate and hijacked a truck that was stopped along the side of the road. They held the truck's driver hostage until they eventually abandoned the truck and found another getaway car. The three drove all the way to New Mexico, where they stole a pickup truck and trailer belonging to an elderly couple that was visiting the area on vacation. They killed the couple, put their bodies in the trailer, and kept driving west. The police eventually found the trailer abandoned at a farm in eastern New Mexico. It had been set on fire, with the victim's remains still inside. It took three weeks for the police to apprehend all the escapees. They found one man in Colorado and another in Wyoming. The last man, and their accomplice, were tracked all around the country before they were eventually captured back in Arizona. For the cost of the manhunt, Mojave County sent a bill to MTC for over $23,500. The first glaring question is the same one that came up after the escape in Ohio in 1998. Why were violent murderers in a medium-security prison? The Arizona government immediately reviewed the inmates at the Kingman prison and removed 238 high-risk offenders, sending them back to state-owned maximum security facilities. They also told MTC they would stop sending new prisoners to their facility until they fixed the faulty alarms and floodlights and retrain their officers. The only problem? Arizona and MTC had agreed to a 97% minimum occupancy quota. Arizona attempted to suspend that 97% guarantee on the grounds that MTC had failed to comply with the obligations of the contract. They would only pay for the inmates that were actually being housed at the Kingman facility until all the security issues were fixed. But MTC claimed the state had no right to refuse to pay them what they'd been guaranteed and demanded $10 million for the losses they'd incurred during the eight months it took them to restore security. MTC had an estimated annual revenue of $500 million. In 2010, Arizona was in nearly $22 billion of debt. The state didn't have the spare resources to take on a lawsuit against the corporation. It would cost them less to make a settlement than to refuse to pay them at all. They ended up settling for a payment of $3 million. The Arizona legislature was disgruntled with MTC, but there was nothing they could do. In 2015, Arizona's governor, Doug Ducey, finally terminated MTC's contract, citing the 2010 escapes as well as a series of riots the private prisons had failed to control. Soon, the state awarded a new contract to GeoGroup. It's worth mentioning that GeoGroup contributed $52,000 to Governor Ducey's 2014 campaign. Coincidence? 
Well, it might be. After all, campaign donations aren't the same thing as bribery. You're right about that. It's perfectly legal for corporations to give money to politicians as long as they do it through the proper channels. But when you start giving money to judges, accreditors, and criminal justice commissioners, you might end up behind bars yourself. Our story will continue in a moment after the break. Is there such a thing as a traveler? Not a Delta. Because we know on one flight, Mike N8C prefers reality TV to reality. So we provide more than 1,000 hours of in-flight entertainment. While on the flight after, 8C is occupied by Jen, whose favorite snack is tea. That's why we provide fast, free Delta Sync Wi-Fi available for SkyMiles members. Because at Delta, we know. Refill? Everyone flies their own way. Delta. Keep climbing. Free Wi-Fi available on most domestic flights. Terms of use apply. Hey, welcome to Ikea, where even this desk is circular. Huh. How so? Looks pretty rectangular to me. It's because we're always looking to repair, reuse, and we love our products, like buying back your Ikea items for store credit. Or shop our as-is section for great deals. You can even order free spare parts. Get on the circular path for a more sustainable future. Still a rectangle. Get started at ikea-usa.com slash circular. Visit ikea-usa.com slash circular for as-is information and buyback and resale terms and conditions. Spare parts not available for all products. Now the story continues. For the past four years, the Mississippi Department of Corrections has been embroiled in an investigation into a massive corruption scheme. Since the investigation is still ongoing, some of the details haven't been released to the public, but here's what we do know. Throughout the late 90s, five private prisons were contracted in the state of Mississippi. Instead of allowing one company to run all the state's private facilities, they split the contracts between CCA, MTC, and Cornell Companies, which was acquired by GeoGroup in 2010. The problems in Mississippi centered around the Walnut Grove Correctional Facility, which was run by Cornell and later GeoGroup, as well as the halfway house located in the same town, the Walnut Grove Transition Center. The transition center was meant to house inmates that were near the end of their sentences and help them adjust to life on the outside. The properties were owned and operated by Cecil McCrory, a local businessman who was also a paid consultant for GeoGroup. When the transition center was opened in 2009, the mayor of Walnut Grove, William Grady Sims, was appointed director and warden of the new facility. He had absolutely no correctional experience. The town's residents and officials soon noticed that the halfway house was being run without much structure or supervision. The inmates were frequently seen roaming around town unsupervised, sometimes spending entire weekends away from the facility. Legally, the inmates weren't supposed to be allowed out of the center unsupervised at all. And then, just a month after Grady Sims started his job as warden, he took a female inmate to a motel in the next town over for a sexual encounter. When the sheriff heard about the allegation, he reported it to the Department of Corrections and an internal investigation was opened. But before the investigation was completed, the Department of Corrections pulled the plug. According to the sheriff, the DOC's investigator told him the case was being dropped without offering any explanation for why. The sheriff thought this was suspicious, so he called the district's U.S. attorney for advice. The U.S. attorney agreed it was strange, 
so he contacted the FBI. The FBI launched an investigation into both Grady Sims and the Commissioner of Mississippi's Department of Corrections, Christopher Epps. They called it Operation Mississippi Hustle. While the FBI was investigating the whole Department of Corrections, the U.S. Department of Justice began its own investigation into Walnut Grove's correctional facility, which had been taken over by GEO Group just a few months earlier. Originally, the Walnut Grove facility was opened as a juvenile correction facility intended only for children under 18. But after the building was expanded in 2003, the state began moving adults in their early 20s into the facility as well. By 2010, Walnut Grove had become the largest juvenile facility in the country, housing 1,200 prisoners from ages 13 to 22. Half of them were arrested for nonviolent offenses. The basis of the problem was that the facility hadn't expanded their staff when the number of inmates increased. A 2005 audit showed that they had a guard-to-prisoner ratio of 1 to 60. A typical ratio at this kind of facility is around 1 to 11. Between the lack of guards and the presence of adults up to age 22, Walnut Grove had become incredibly unsafe for the younger inmates. Just a month after the Justice Department announced their investigation, the Southern Poverty Law Center and the ACLU filed a class action lawsuit against GEO Group for negligence and abuse at the facility. When the Justice Department released the report on their investigation, it backed up the lawsuit's claims. The report called the conditions at Walnut Grove, quote, among the worst we have seen in any facility anywhere in the nation, end quote. A number of the guards at Walnut Grove were known to have gang affiliations, and they'd become involved in everything from drug smuggling to sexual abuse of the child inmates. The facility was also denying required health care to its inmates and ignoring the violence and rape that had become commonplace inside its walls. A federal court ordered the state to terminate its contract with GeoGroup. So in 2012, the three prisons that had been managed by GeoGroup were given to MTC. The deal was negotiated by MTC's new paid consultant, Cecil McRory. Isn't Cecil McRory also the owner of the Walnut Grove Transition Center? Yes, he is. The Justice Department was done with Walnut Grove's prison, but the FBI's investigation into the Transition Center was still going on, and they were starting to realize that every problem tied back to McRory. On November 5, 2014, the Commissioner of the Corrections Department, Christopher Epps, resigned from his position. The very next day, he was indicted for taking nearly $1.5 million in bribes and kickbacks from Mississippi's private prisons. Epps had taken the money in exchange for awarding contracts worth an estimated $800 million to companies owned by Cecil McRory, as well as companies that hired McRory as a paid consultant. Epps pled guilty and was sentenced to 27 years in prison. This was just the beginning of the storm. As of 2017, 10 people have pled guilty to corruption charges, including Cecil McCrory, ex-mayor Grady Sims, and several consultants and lobbyists for local prison management corporations. The supervisor of Harrison County, William Martin, 
was indicted for bribery and corruption, but he committed suicide just hours before he was scheduled to appear in court. According to the assistant U.S. attorney, there are still six or seven open investigations related to the scandal. In addition to that, the Mississippi Attorney General has filed civil charges against 15 corporations and individuals who had contracts with Christopher Epps, including GeoGroup and MTC. GeoGroup is currently fighting to dismiss those charges. They claim they weren't aware of any of McRory's criminal activity. Both GeoGroup and MTC fired McRory as soon as he was indicted, insisting that he'd been acting without their permission. But there's one fact about the investigation that doesn't add up. In 2010, around the time when GeoGroup took over the Walnut Grove prison, McCrory's monthly salary from GeoGroup doubled from $5,000 to $10,000. The company's finance director wouldn't answer questions about why the amount was doubled or what exactly McCrory was being paid to do in the first place. Hmm, do you think they have something to hide? That's for the investigators to figure out. For now, all we have is GeoGroup's word, which is that they had no idea McRory was bribing officials. Another major bribery scandal happened in Pennsylvania in 2008, when two judges were convicted for what's been called the Kids for Cash scandal. The judges, Mark Shivarella and Michael Conahan, had been accepting money from the managers of two juvenile detention centers, PA Child Care and its sister facility, Western PA Child Care. In return, they sentenced children to unusually harsh sentences to increase the number of residents in the facilities. One 15-year-old girl was sentenced to three months in juvenile detention for mocking her school's assistant principal on Facebook. Another 14-year-old was sentenced to nine months for stealing small change from an unlocked car. Between 2004 and 2008, Pennsylvania received four complaints about Conahan's improper sentencing, but they failed to investigate any of them. The Juvenile Law Center petitioned the state's Supreme Court, alleging that the judges had violated the young offender's civil rights, but the petition was denied. But when the FBI was tipped off about Conahan's conduct, they began an investigation. In 2009, the U.S. attorney filed charges against Conahan and Shivarella, accusing them of taking millions of dollars in exchange for securing a contract for the private juvenile detention facilities. A federal grand jury indicted them for 48 counts of racketeering, fraud, extortion, bribery, and tax violations. Shivarella was sentenced to 28 years in prison, and Conahan received 17 and a half years. The Pennsylvania Supreme Court ruled that Shivarella and Conahan had violated the rights of 6,000 juveniles by denying them a fair trial. All the sentences Shivarella had given from 2003 to 2008 were vacated, and the records of all the affected juveniles were expunged. Looking at these massive corruption scandals in Mississippi and Pennsylvania, it's hard not to wonder whether there's more corruption than we're even aware of. The private prison system has been a hotbed for conspiracy theories ever since the 80s. How much power does the prison industrial complex really have? And what was the true motivation behind the prison boom of the 80s and 90s? Let's look at some of the most interesting explanations. 
Theory number one. The CIA was involved in cocaine trafficking in the 80s, and they started the crack epidemic as an excuse to fill prisons with low-income drug users. Theory number two. The campaign of mass incarceration during the war on drugs was a conscious attempt to control and subjugate the black population. This is a controversial idea, but we'll consider the evidence objectively, without taking sides, as we aim to only express facts, not opinions. Theory number three, record labels push the gangster rap genre to encourage crime and profit the prison industry. Private prisons are in cahoots with the music industry? They've contributed money to politicians and lobbying groups. Don't you think they might contribute to record labels too? Let's save this discussion for next week. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. Join us next week for a second look at the prison industrial complex. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Conspiracy Theories is written by Kate Gallagher and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy.